We've been in a series here at Big Valley Grace for the past eight weeks called The Bible, The Whole Bible, and Nothing But The Bible. And today I'm going to wrap it up uh, with this last message. And this message is uh, really different than what I normally preach, okay? Uh, this is more of a teaching kind of a, a message. And, and I'm not the greatest teacher in the world. I, I'm a better preacher than I am teacher. And there is a, a difference. I've had three goals, and I shared them with you, especially on week one, what I hope God would accomplish in all of our lives as we uh, kind of went through this, and it ended up being longer than I thought it was going to be. And the first one was that we'd all be a, a group of people, a church family that loved our, our Bibles more. We learned to love our Bibles more. And I know that's happened. I, I've gotten just hundreds of emails, and it's a it's beautiful to see how, how that has changed in many of your lives. The second thing is that we would learn to love to obey God's word greater. And once again, I've received just lots of emails from many of you saying, hey, man, I'm really taking that to heart. But the third one and the most important one was that as we went through this, we'd learn to love Jesus more. The goal wasn't that you just loved this book more and that you just did what this book said, but that you would have a, a greater love for the, for the God that's revealed between these two leather-bound covers. And uh, once again, as I've read your emails and things, it's just unbelievable to see how the Lord has been working in all of our, our lives. Uh, the Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, kind of been our theme verse, all scripture, all scripture, everybody hold up the scriptures, everybody hold up their Bibles, the oracles of God, if you will, okay, all scriptures inspired by God, that book that you were just holding up, or that book that you have on your smartphone, it's been inspired by God, it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives it corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, the word of God, to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This book is, is used in every area of my life. It, it has trained me on how to deal with my finances. It has uh, taught me how to uh, raise my children. It's taught me how to be a, an employee or an employer. The, this right here, this is the book that God uses. It's this, and it's just filled with all kinds of unbelievable information about all kinds of, of different things. And when the Bible says that it's inspired by God, it just simply means that God supernaturally filled the writers of Scripture with his Holy Spirit, that they would write the very words that God wanted them to to write, the, the Bible is God-breathed, it, it's God-inspired, it's like no other book. Hebrews chapter one says, long ago, <clears throat> God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And the writer here in he Hebrews is talking about those 39 books in the Old Testament. Okay, the New Testament had been written. And so we're told that long ago, it was God who was speaking, and he did it lots of different ways, lots of different methods, 
But he did it through the, the, the prophets, which then those prophets wrote down the word of God. And so we have it. We have it right here. God spoke to us through, the, through our ancestors. And the New Testament is no different, beloved. God spoke through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, uh, Paul, Jude. So the Bible just isn't a bunch of neat thoughts. It's actually God's word to us. It's his perfect word to us. And as a result of that, Psalms 119 says, all of your commands can be trusted. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if the Bible is God-breathed, if it's God-inspired, if God actually filled all of these writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament with his Holy Spirit in a, in a very unique way, then there's no doubt that you, you can trust everything that's written in this book. But how do you really know, Pastor? How do you really know this is God's word? Maybe it's all a bunch of hogwash. Maybe it's uh, all a bunch of fables or whatever. I mean, how do you really know if the Bible is God's word? How do you know if this book is true? And I want you to know that's a legitimate question. Every Christian ought to you know, think that question through. You ought to be able to answer that question. Over the years, Time Magazine thought that this was such an important question that it put it on its cover at least three times. The first one was on April 8th, 1966. The cover said, is God dead? That was the cover of the, the and you can Google this when you get home, April 8th, 1966, is God dead? In other words, really? This can't be true. The second one was on December 30th, 1974, and the cover read, How True Is the Bible? That was on the cover of Time Magazine. You can Google it. The third one was December 18th, 1995. Is the Bible fact or fiction? Today I want to settle the issue. Because there are a number of really great reasons or, or proofs or evidences that make it obvious that this really is God's word and not just a bunch of fables or made up uh, stories. And the first one is this, and these aren't in any particular order, okay? And it's not a comprehensive list. In fact, um, the very last one, I'm probably just gonna throw it out to you. It might be the most important one or the most weighty one, but uh, I, I, for whatever reason, decided to put them in this order. And uh, as I said a minute ago, I think they're gonna be a blessing to you. Reason number one, the Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. You ought to write that down. In other words, when the Bible talks about a group of people, those people were real people. When the Bible talks about a city, that city was a real city. When the Bible talks about a location within the city, that location was a real location. You can actually go and find these places. We've actually dug these places up in many cases. Jerusalem is a real place. I've been there. 
Bethlehem is a real place, I've been there. Nazareth is a real place, I've been there. The Sea of Galilee is a, is a real place, I, I've been there. I've floated on the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River is a real river, I've been there. Capernaum, the headquarters of Jesus' earthly ministry, we've dug it up. It's a real place. I've been there. Portions of Herod's temple, we've dug it up. It's a real place. I, I've been there. The pool of Siloam where the blind man was healed, we've dug it up. I've been there. It's a real place. Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down. Just last year when I was in uh, Israel, we actually went to, to, to that city. I, I saw the stones uh, of the wall that came tumbling down. It's a real place. Nineveh, where God sent Jonah to preach the gospel, is a real city. We've dug it up. Mount Carmel, where Isaiah took on the false prophets, you know, these 400 false prophets. It's a real place. I've been there. And I could have just gone on and on and on and on and on. When you read about these places in the Bible, they're, they're historically accurate. The Bible isn't just doctrinally accurate. It's not just theologically correct. It just doesn't give us our moral compass, if you will. But it records true, accurate history. Real people, real places. Now let me give you an example of how it, 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 it works, or it tends to work. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we read about an empire called the Hittites. Okay, in the famous story of David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was a Hittite, we're told. The problem was, was that the Bible was the only place that you read about the Hittites. In other words, they, they weren't talked about or mentioned in any other historical uh, document. So for centuries, historians said, well, the Bible just made it up because we can't find the Hittites anyplace else. See, the, the, the Bible, it's just, it's just a bunch of fables. No such thing as the Hittites. And if that were true, then why would we believe in this? If there's one mistake in this book, why, why would we put our trust in it? If there's one error in this book, maybe there's two. Maybe the resurrection didn't happen. I mean, if this was really written by God, Pastor, and, and, and you, you would think you wouldn't find any errors in it. You're right, you wouldn't find any errors in it. But for a long time, the Bible talked about this group of people called the Hittites. Until the early 1900s, a professor by the name of Hugo Winkler discovered at this city called Boguskoy 10,000 clay tablets at the capital of the Hittites. Now everyone, every historian believes in the Hittites. In fact, when you go home, you can go on Wikipedia and you can read about the Hittites. But for years, everybody thought, see, right there, we got our proof. Bible talks about this group of people called the Hittites. There's no Hittites. So there's an error, there's a mistake. You guys are wrong. There's all kinds of errors. Oops! Until they found this actual city. Let me give you a, a, another one, and it, it's one of my favorites. In Daniel chapter five, I want everybody to turn to Daniel chapter five, okay? Everybody turn there real, real, real quick. Daniel chapter five, okay? Daniel chapter five. And in Daniel chapter five, we, we read about this guy uh, by the name of King 
um, Belshazzar, okay? There we go. And it's in Daniel chapter five that um, King Belshazzar has this party. He's got all the Jewish people down locked in prison and he's having this party and man, the alcohol is flowing, man. They got the kegs in there, they got the bar in there, they got the disco balls spinning. I mean, this is one, this, this is a, a, a raging party. And at this party in Daniel chapter five, it's the story of this armless hand that shows up on the wall. So imagine this big party's going on and all of a sudden there's this hand crawling up the wall. And it writes these words. It writes the words, many, many tickle you farson. And everybody in the party, you can imagine, didn't matter how much beer you had in you, if you saw a hand climbing up a wall, you'd stop. The band stopped. The disco ball stopped spinning, man. The beer stopped flowing. The bartender stopped shaking. Everybody's looking at this armless hand. Many, many tickle you farson. And the king said, well, what does that mean? And nobody knew what it meant. And so the king said, hey, I want you to go get uh, all my, my wise men up here. So the king goes and he gets all of his wise men and he says, now look, you see that right up there? I need to know what that, what that says. And all these wise men kind of put their heads together and they looked at it, many, many tickle you farson, and they said, king, we have no clue. We didn't take armless handwriting in college. We have no idea what that says. It's kind of freaky. But the wise men say, but king, you got this guy down in prison. Freaky guy. His name is Daniel. And we hear that Daniel, he can interpret things like this. Maybe you ought to get Daniel up here, let him look at it, and we're golden. You'll know what it says. And so the king asked for Daniel. And to know where I'm going with this, I want you to look at Daniel chapter 5, look at verse 16, or 14, sorry. The king says, I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me what their meaning is, many, many tickle you, Farson, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you will have a, a gold chain placed around your neck, man, and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. This is Belshazzar talking. Hey, Daniel, you tell me what many, many tickle you, Farson means. You're gonna have a nice robe, I'm gonna give you a Mr. T starter set, and, 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 and you're gonna be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel says, well, I got some good news and I got some bad news. The good news, I can tell you exactly what it says, the bad news is you're gonna to die tonight. God's had it up to here with you, king. And sure enough, that night, uh, Belshazzar dies. Now, here, here's, here, here's the deal. Here's the problem we had for a lot of years. We actually had a list of all the Babylonian kings. We knew who all the Babylonian kings were. And there's no such thing as a King Belshazzar. Never has been, never will be. 
But man, the Bible says right there, you can read it, Daniel 5.1, there's a king. His name is Bel- Belshazzar. He was the last Babylonian king. There's no, Bel- no Belshazzar was never a king. We got, it looked like we had a problem. Until about the mid-1800s, still considered, some considered maybe one of the greatest archaeological finds of all times, they were digging where this party actually kind of went on. It was in a a city called Baghdad. (laughs) And they actually found this place. And as they were digging down, they actually found the cornerstone of the palace where this party was going on. And uh, back then, just like we do now, they put a, um, oh, you know how they kind of put a special plaque on a building when something's built, and they got all the important people, the dignitaries of the day, they put them on, you know, the, the plaque, the placard. Well, on this placard were all the dignitaries, all the special people of the day. And it started with something like this. I'm, uh, you, you can Google it, you can look it up. I, King... No, no. I, King Nabonidus, don't really like this king and stuff all that much. I want to take a break. I'm going to go on a sabbatical. And I'm going to leave the kinging duties to my son, Belshazzar. So Belshazzar was never really a king. He was just working under his father. Now you go back to that verse I read. Belshazzar says to Daniel, hey Daniel, tell me what mini, mini tickle you farson says. I'll put a purple robe on you, I'll give you some jewelry, and I'll make you the third highest ruler. Third? You see, he couldn't make Daniel any higher than number three. His daddy was number one, he was number two. The highest he could make Daniel was number three. So it looked like for a lot of years we had a problem with our Bibles. There was no such thing as a King Belshazzar until once again some guys had a, you know, a shovel. That's why I love archaeology. You just, I love it when you get archaeologists out there digging and stuff because you know what they're going to do? They're just going to continue to prove the Bible is accurate as it relates to uh, history. Now, why is all this important? Because the Bible says that God cannot lie. I'm asked all the time, hey, Pastor Rick, is there anything that God can't do? And the answer is yes. There's a lot of things that God can't do. And one of those things is God can't lie. He can't lie. Hebrews chapter six says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Beloved, if the Bible has one lie in it, then it couldn't have been written by God because God can't lie, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Psalms chapter 34 says, God's word is true and everything he does is right. The Bible is not true just about theological things, sin, the impact of sin, salvation, redemption, and those types of things, but it's also true about history. Number two, reason number two, the Bible is scientifically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. It's not only historically accurate, it's 
it's scientifically accurate. Now, there are a lot of people, even a lot of Christians, that believe the Bible is scientifically inaccurate, that it's full of a bunch of bad science. And I want you to know, they're wrong. When you see these you know, losers on TV jamming up the Bible, and they just haven't read it. They just haven't read it. Because the Bible is scientifically accurate. Now, the Bible wasn't given to us to be a scientific textbook. That's not why we have it. But everything in here is scientifically accurate. In fact, it was accurate long before it's time. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. For thousands and thousands of thousands of years, we really weren't sure if the world was flat or round. Now, a lot of people believed it was round, but it wasn't really until Magellan you know, circumvented the, the globe in the early 1500s that we knew for sure. So today, it's a scientific fact that the world is round. That's what we teach in our schools today. That's what teachers and professors would teach. It's a scientific fact today that the world is actually round. Okay. Here's the deal. I want you to listen to what the great uh, prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40. God sits above the circle of the earth. Some of your Bibles will say sphere of the earth. That was written 2,000 years at least before Magellan sailed around the world. In fact, at the time that Isaiah wrote this, not everybody agreed with it. A lot of people thought, man, see, the Bible just isn't scientifically accurate. It says that the world's round. God sits above the sphere of the earth or the circle of the earth. Thank you, Magellan, for approving that thousands of years before we really got it for a fact. The Bible had already told us that the world was, was round. Let me give you another cool example. For thousands of years, it was a scientific fact that there were only about 3,000 stars in the sky. A, a guy would go out and go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, da, 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 da. And they, I don't know, they mapped it all out and they would look at it. It's 3,000. And so, I don't know, the professors would go into their classrooms and go, it's a scientific fact. We got 3,000 stars. I counted them. Did a research paper. and We've all agreed there's 3,000 stars in, in heaven. Well, in the early 1600s, uh, the telescope was invented, and Galileo discovered that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of more stars. And so you can imagine that first time. All the science books said there were about 3,000 stars, and Galileo goes, 2,999, 3,000. Today we have telescopes like the Hubble telescope, and they've discovered that there are literally more stars than you can count. Can't count them all. Now listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 33. 
He said, as the stars of the sky cannot be counted and the sands on the seashore cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who ministered before me. Let me, let me just, let me cut to the chaser. Let me tell you what he's saying. Basically, he's saying that there are as many stars in the sky as there are grains of sand on the seashore. Well, that was ludicrous. Hey, your Bible's full of bad science. Man, you could take a thimble down to Santa Cruz Beach and just put a thimble full of sand on there, pour it out on your kitchen table, and you're going to count more than 3,000 stars, 3,000 grains of sand. And your Bible here, your, your, your perfect word of God's got this huge mistake in it. It says that there are as many stars in the heavens as grains of sands on the seashore. And I guess for a long time it looked like, you know, oh, there is a mistake, eh. Thank you, whoever invented the telescope, Mr. Hubble, or whatever. Because <laughs> guess what? The Bible was way ahead of the Hubble telescope. Now, it's not a science book, but what science is in it is always accurate. You will not find any bogus history or any bogus science in this book. Um, here's another one. For thousands of years, people believed that the earth had to be held up by, by something. Debated amongst different, you know, cultures and things. Depending, you know, on the culture you're in, you got certain beliefs. For instance, if you were Greek, uh, the Greek culture believed that the world or the sky was kind of held up by a giant guy by the name of Atlas, okay? And, uh, and he held up really the, the cosmoses, you know, and all. And we've all seen those pictures, right, of Atlas. And whether that was the earth or not, there was this idea that maybe that's what, how the earth was being held up. Now, part of the Bible was written in Greek. How many of you uh, have found any reference to Atlas in your, your Bible? Yeah, it's not there, that's right. The reason why you don't find it, because it's not true. You'd expect that during a time, it, during that time, it would have somehow found its way into the Bible. But it doesn't. Because God knew the earth isn't being, you know, held up by a giant by the name of Atlas. For thousands of years, the Hindus believed the earth sat on the back of a giant elephant, and that that elephant then, you know, whenever it moved, that's why you had earthquakes. And that the elephant then sat on the back of a giant, you know, uh, uh, sea turtle. And the giant sea turtle stood on the back of a giant serpent who swam through the cosmic sea. That was the prevailing attitude in the world for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But you don't find it in the Bible. Because this book is truth. So you're not going to find a, a dumb lie like, like that in, in, in here. Um, think about Moses. I want you to just think about this for a second. Moses was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, right? Which means he was skilled and schooled in all of the wisdom of ancient Egypt. He went to the finest grade schools. He went to the finest junior high, finest high school. He went to the finest college. He's a grandson of the Pharaoh. And they were brilliant people. They built the pyramids and all that. I mean, these were brilliant people. 
Unbelievably brilliant. And one of the myths or theories that they had in, in that day in, in Egypt was that somehow the earth was held up by five pillars. You can, you can go home and read all about this. Yet not once does Moses say anything about the earth being held up by pillars or some other you know, wisdom that the Egyptians would have taught. Nowhere. Yet he would have been schooled in it. He has PhD or his master's degree in whatever it was the Egyptians believed in, and yet nowhere, not one place in in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, some of the Psalms that he wrote, do you find anything about what the Egyptians might have believed in? Because it's just not true, so I didn't make it into the Bible. Listen to what Job said. Some scholars believe that Job is the oldest piece of literature ever written it was written before Moses wrote Genesis. Now Genesis tells us about the beginning and so it's the first book in the Bible, but a lot of people, including myself, believe that Job would have been written long before Moses ever wrote Genesis. And he said, God stretches the northern sky over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. No elephant, no pillars, no atlas, nothing. And of course, today, if you were to look, you know, you see the thing, you just, there it is. Just there, there's no, just hanging there. How did Job know that? You know it. How did Isaiah know that the world was round? How did Jeremiah know there were more stars in the heavens than there are grains? How did Job know this? He knew that because God filled these prophets of old with exactly what he wanted them to know. And they wrote that down. Even though at the time it may have seemed crazy when they wrote it. it may seem dumb, weird, wacky, weird, whatever. I could go on in many different areas. I could talk about biology and show you what the Bible says about biology and chemistry and show you what the Bible says about chemistry. Uh, Medicine, unbelievable how the Bible just nails medicine long before we ever figured it out. Leviticus says that life is in the blood. And for a lot of years, you know what they used to do? They used to cut patience and let him bleed out because they thought that it was the blood that was bad. It wasn't the blood that was bad. Unbelievable what the Bible teaches. Anyway, you can trust the Bible because it's historically accurate, it's scientifically accurate. Number three, we're gonna shift gears here just a little bit. The, the Bible is thematically unified, okay? It was written over 1,600 years. It was written by 40 different authors. It was written on three different continents. It was written in three different languages. Yet the message is totally unified. It's all about Jesus. 
Told you over and over again, 39 books in the Old Testament. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. 27 books in the New Testament. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. The, 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 the 1,600 years, 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages, and yet you have this unbelievable message that's unified. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. He said, then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early in the morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and they had seen angels who had told them that Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran to see and sure enough, his body was gone just as the woman had said. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the writing of Moses. So Jesus is taking these people through the writings of Moses and all of the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, you know, Malachi, whoever, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of these writers, whether it be in Moses or, 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 or whoever it was, it was all about him. Every one of them. You find Jesus, as I've told you, in every book of the Bible. You don't find the name Jesus, obviously, in the Old Testament, but you find the fact that the Messiah, the Savior, was gonna come, and Jesus is saying, that's about me. You get to the New Testament, and it was all about Jesus. We know who the Savior was, right? Most people think the New Testament is about Jesus and the Old Testament is about Israel and, and that's just wrong. The New Testament wasn't even written when Jesus said this in Luke chapter 24. He's talking about the Old Testament. It says that Jesus went through all the scriptures and showed them what it said about him. The story in the Bible is about Jesus from beginning to end. And it took 1,800 years to write it. 40 different authors had to author it. It was written on three different continents. Jesus also said this in uh, chapter five, he said to a group of people, you search the scriptures because you think they, they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And the scriptures he was talking about was the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament, well that's something different than the New Testament. No, it's all the same. It's all about Jesus. All about him. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, it's the same theme of redemption from Genesis to the end. And, and Jesus is the star of the whole book. Now some of you are thinking, what's the big deal about that? I know a lot of books that carry the same theme from beginning to end. Well, let me just go through one more time for you. It was written over 1,600 
hundred years. It was written by over 40 different authors on three different continents, and it was written in three different languages, yet the message is totally unifying. It's one thing if one person would have wrote the book. The Quran was written by one book, Muhammad. Muslims believe the Quran was verbally revealed by God to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel, you know, and, and it took him about 23 years to get it all. So you would expect that there would be some sort of thematic unity in that book. It was written by one guy. The Analects of C Confucius are, were written by Confucius. So you'd expect it was written by one guy. There would be thematic unity throughout that whole book. The writings of Buddha are written by Buddha, so you'd expect them to have some thematic unity. That makes sense. The Bible was written by 40 different people in every age and stage of life. It was written by poets and prophets. It was written by princes and kings. It was written by sailors and soldiers. It was written by attorneys and doctors and MD. It was written by prisoners. It was written by common people. All kinds of people wrote the Bible. You couldn't get a more diverse group of people together to write a book. Fishermen and tax collectors and scholars and businessmen and over a 1600 year period. The they all came up with the same story. Some of the Bible was written in a cave. Some of it was written on ships. Some of it was written in homes. Some of it was written in palaces. Some of it was written in prisons. And yet it all has the exact same story. It's the story of Jesus, the Messiah. Let me just tell you something. That's just freaky, if you think about it. It's just freaky. Yeah, it's historically accurate. Yes, it's scientifically accurate. But when you look at the unity of all these books, it just screams, I'm no normal book. Somebody was putting this book together for us. Unbelievable. All right, reason number four. The Bible has been attacked and 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 attacked. It's still being attacked over the centuries, yet it's still the best-selling book ever. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 24. He says, heaven and earth are gonna disappear, but my words will never disappear. The only thing on this planet that's gonna last forever is the word of God. It's eternal. Everything else is gonna burn up, but the word of God is eternal because God's truth will last forever. Peter said this, people are like grass, their beauty is like a flower in the field, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord is gonna remain forever. I want you to think about this, beloved. The Bible is the most despised book ever written. The Bible is the most denied book ever written. The Bible is the most disputed book ever written. The Bible is the most dissected book ever written. The Bible is the most debated book ever written. The Bible is the most outlawed book ever written. It's the most destroyed book ever written. The Bible is the most banned book ever written. Your Bible that you have in your hand has been under attack for centuries after century after century. And yet, you still got one in your hand, don't you? Hallelujah. <laughs> still being translated in all kinds of different languages. 
When you just grasp how hated and, and reviled this book is, how banned it's been. No book has been burned more than this book. And that God makes sure his word's still here. He wants you to have his, his word. Millions of people have died because they refused to give up their Bible. People were, were, were killed because it was illegal to have a Bible in their country. It's still illegal to have the Bible in some countries today. And when you think about how the Bible has been attacked and attacked and attacked over the century, yet it's still here, I, I, here's the deal. It says something. In fact, I was reading a number of quotes from some guys that are not believers, and they all agree, you know, it is kind of weird. <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird how we've been trying to get rid of this thing for a long time, people have. And yet we still have it. And the fifth one, and this is the most subjective one, but it's the one that I've seen personally the most, is this. The Bible has been used to transform countless lives. You see, the Bible has the power to transform your life. God uses the Bible in our lives to transform us. The, the words of this book literally have, have transformed me, and I'm using the word transform, not changed. A lot of things can change your life. You win the lottery, it'll change your life. You get married, that'll change your life. Have children, that'll change your life. Get a DUI, that'll change your life. A lot of things will change your life. There's only one thing that'll transform your life. You see, you can change and then go back. Change isn't permanent. Transformation is. You see, when a butterfly or a, a, a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly, it can't go back. When a, a, a tadpole transforms into a frog, it can't go back. Metamorphosis has happened. I'm not talking about something that'll change your life. Oh, everybody's going to health clubs, working out. Man, my life has been changed. Yeah, your life has been changed. No doubt about it, man. Losing some weight, man, it'll change your life. Makes it easier on your knees, you know. Uh, you feel better. I get it, man. But how many of us have lost weight, we've changed, and then we put it right back on again. We change back. See, working out doesn't transform your life. And so those of you that work out, those of you that have health clubs and all that, quit saying if you come here, it'll transform your life. Because there's only one thing that'll transform your life, and that's the Word of God. This is what transforms people's lives. Not getting yourself into shape. It'll change your life, I agree. But there's only one thing that will transform your life. And it's the Scriptures. This book right here has literally transformed formed my life. Yes, I'm not taking anything away from the power of the Holy Spirit within me. But what's interesting, when I gave my life to Christ all those decades ago and the Holy Spirit came in me, guess what? <laughs> I was still the same guy. It was the words of this book as I began to eat them and chew them and study them that God's Holy Spirit took those words and that's what he used to transform my life and most of your lives in this room. I've seen drunks and drug addicts literally have their lives transformed by the Bible. Literally, drunks, drunks, they were slaves to Jim Beam. Yes, master, 
Yes, master. They had Jim hidden in the trunk. They had a guy named Jack hidden in their office in a closet. They were slaves to a clear liquid. And I watched them give their lives to Christ and they got into the word of God and their lives were transformed. Drug addicts. I've seen men who couldn't control their, their anger. They were physically violent, literally transformed by the, by the Bible. I've seen liars and cheats and robbers literally have their lives transformed by the words of this book. I've seen crummy, crummy, unbelievably crummy dads transformed by the power of the words of this book. I've seen people couldn't handle the finances, then they just didn't have any, they just kept blowing their money. And all of a sudden, man, they gave their life to Christ and they began to study the words of this book and they began to live out the principles in this book. It changed their life. 1 Corinthians chapter six says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or have male, pro or who male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or are greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, some of you were once like that. Now, that's not a comprehensive list of all the things that'll keep somebody out of the kingdom of God. It's a pretty good one. I'll bet most of us in this room would go, you know, I was one of those things. And I was looking at this list this past week and every single one of those, I know people, they're sitting in this auditorium right now they used to be one, two, three. I was at least four of those things. Five, if, you know, depending on how you looked at a Greek word before I gave my life to Christ. I was at least five of those things. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I got into his word, and guess what? Man, God began to transform my life. I want the same person that I used to be. Ah, I'm still goofed up, man. I still wrestle around with my flesh. I still wrestle around with stuff, trust me. But my life has been transformed. Two weeks ago, I, I, uh, uh, I shared with you this verse. Jesus said, make them holy, make them sanctified, set them apart, how does that happen? By your truth, teach them your, your word, which is truth. Yes, God's Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us and all these great things happen in the moment of salvation, but it's somehow the transformation happens with this. Jesus said this in uh, John chapter eight, he said, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and it'll be the truth that will set you free. It'll be the truth that transforms your life. When you understand and submit your life to the truth, uh, uh, to the Bible, it, it just sets you free. 
When you understand, as I said a couple of weeks ago, the truth about you that you were created in God's image, the truth about you that sin goofed up that image, that your sin separated you from the Father, when you understand and know that truth, when you understand and know the truth that God loved you anyway, and he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you on a cross, when you know and understand that truth, when you know that Jesus was put into a tomb and he walked out of that tomb three days later, when you know that truth and you submit to that truth, when you when you say, God, I need you in my life, let me tell you something. Your life will be transformed. That's what transforms us. Romans chapter 12 says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How does that happen? By changing the way you think. It's this. This is the thing that God uses to transform our lives. And here's the thing. <laughs> As I said up front, it's, it's subjective. I get it. But here's the deal. You can't take away my story. You can't take away Rick Hanks' story. You can't take away Gordon Agrella's story. You can't take away our stories of how this book has transformed our lives. It's one of the things that you have to say, you know, here's the deal. There is a unique power in this book. If you, if you have the Holy Spirit in it and you really believe it and you submit your life to it, there's, something, there's, something, there's some crazy stuff here. Transform my life. And the last one, and I, I know I wouldn't have time to get through this, but I want you to write it down anyway. And this is the one that everybody I know is going to say, hey, do another one. You know, you need to make one more week of it. And I'm not going to, but that is this. The, the, the Bible is full of fulfilled prophecy. And this is the one we always talk about in church, and, you know, and, and, and I get it. But some of these others were things that I wanted you to hear and and, 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 and write down because they're things we don't often think about. You can trust the Bible because it's prophetically accurate. And what do I mean by that? It, it means that, that the predictions that the Bible gave, and there were, the, there were all these prophecies or predictions that were made in the Old Testament, let's say. And God said, this and this is gonna happen, or this is gonna happen at this moment, somewhere in the future. <laughs> it's crazy, man. They all happened, just like God said they were gonna happen. Now, some of them haven't happened yet. Some, there are some prophecies that, prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet, but they will be. But when you read through what you know, these Old Testament prophets said, and by the way, every single one of them, every single one of them happens just the way God said they were gonna happen. Because God doesn't live in our time frame. He, 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 he gets it, he understands what's gonna happen out here. So he could tell everybody, hey, this is gonna happen. I'm gonna send my savior. And here's how you'll recognize him, because this could be a hard gig. A lot of people are born every year. Here's how you'll recognize him. He'll be born of a virgin. That's a pretty good one right there. That's weird, really. Uh, <laughs> He'd be born in a town called Bethlehem. He'd be known as a Nazarene. All these things were said thousands of years before 
We knew who it was, you see? And I wish I could go through uh, some more of those with you, but I don't have time. This is what I want you to do. I want everybody to stand up, okay? The Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is scientifically accurate. The Bible is thematically unified. The Bible has been attacked and attacked and attacked over the centuries, but it's still the best-selling book ever. The Bible has been used to transform countless lives, my life included, and the Bible is just full of just fulfilled prophecies. And like I said, that's not a comprehensive list. There's a lot of other things I could have gone into. But I do think it's a great question. It's a legitimate question that every Christian ought to be able to answer, at least in their own mind, that, hey, is this really God's word? I want you to know that book that you're holding in your hand right now, it's like no other book. I don't worship this book. I don't worship this book. But I sure love this book. Because without this book, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just lost. I don't, I don't know anything. So when you go home tonight or tomorrow morning and you get up and you read this book, you, you can have the confidence to know you're reading God's word. That all scripture truly is God breathed. God came upon these writers and wrote exactly what he wanted them to write and we just have this unbelievable privilege of having this book and continue to, to, to spend time in it. And next week, I'm, I'm gonna do something really cool. I, I think you're gonna dig it. So you're gonna wanna come back next week and we're ramping up towards Easter and all of that. But Father, thank you, Lord, for our time tonight. And I'm really grateful for all of the children's workers and all of the youth workers that are down here and serving so we could come in here as adults. I'm thankful for all of the, the, the maintenance team, the facilities team that get everything all cleaned up and make it all right and get all the chairs right. And man, they work really hard to, for, for, for a moment like this. Blessings on all of them. Thank you for all the ushers and the greeters and those that receive the offering, just, just good people that love you, God. Thank you for those that serve out in the cafe, those that serve out in the information center. Just really grateful for the hundreds of people that make a Saturday night happen here. I pray, Father, that you pour out your favor on all of these folks that are here, God. Whether they go to Big Valley Grace or not, if they name the name of Christ, may they continue to learn to love their Bibles, may they continue to learn to obey their Bibles more, and May they continue to love Jesus, the one who's revealed through all of the pages of this unbelievable book, God. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, go get your kids, man. Go get them, all right? Blessings. Uh